Rebecca Deschweinitz, so on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm happy to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, February 25th, 2024. Uh, we're happy to have with us uh, uh, Christian Kimball, who is uh, our co-host for this program and currently serving as Dialogue Board Chair. Fellow board member Michael Austin is also here. He's helping with a little bit of tech, but his main job today is to breathe. <laughs> Uh, Linda Hoffman Kimball is also joining us. Uh, she'll be offering um, so, uh, some poetry and, uh, and some other thoughts. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all the Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous Gospel Study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report and links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at DialogueJournal.com is also the latest issue of the journal and the entire Dialogue archive, more than five decades of scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into Dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Please support that work and help us secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. Our teacher today, again, is Christian Kimball. Uh, Christian is a member of the Dialogue uh, Board, currently serving as chair, and in his post-retirement life has also kept busy publishing things like Living on the Inside of the Edge, a survival guide in 2023. Uh, Pre-retirement, Chris practiced law and taught law in four different positions over a 40-year period. In that time, he published uh, an obscure book on the tax aspects of organizing the corporate venture, several academic tax articles, and a great many presentations and articles with an audience of one. Uh, uh, we're glad that he's uh, producing uh, less obscure books these days. His JD is from the University of Chicago Law School. Um, Christian and Linda live in Utah. They celebrate their three children and their families and delight in their 11 grandchildren. And they're joining us, joining us today, actually, um, traveling uh, in Colorado. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. If you're live on Zoom today or following along on Facebook where we're running a live stream, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat, and we anticipate incorporating those uh, into the discussion today. Uh, Joining us today to offer an opening prayer is Peter Deschweinitz. Um, we're keeping it in the family a little bit today. Uh, and uh, we'll start with music uh, by singer-songwriter Abby Kaplan, uh, The Summit. Keep warm and keep tough and keep climbing, fearless of wind. 
Keep shaming, keep taming those voices if I'm mine. Oh, 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 Straight things the same day for my kids' sake, what I'm becoming. No pain and no gain, yeah, I'm falling out of line. Oh, oh, oh. Sit and sit and down to something eat. The kid passed out of the fat cow. Bleeding the rest, waiting back on a woody haste. But oh. But oh, 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 Do you really been in me a lot, Keenan? Yeah, I keep walking on. It's then I can't win, but I still keep running. Can't breathe, I can't see, but I'm headed for that line. Oh, 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 oh. Sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit Lady, your rest, waiting to back up on the muddy haste. But oh, oh, Dear Lord, we're grateful to gather today and to hear Chris's message and to be able to discuss and think about the gospel and bless us with this time that we will be able to know what kinds of beliefs and values to question in our own lives and how to let go and how to take on new attitudes and Please bless all the people who are suffering in the world from war and other difficulties from 
grief and mourning and bless those who are sick. Um, bless Michael that he will uh, continue to get better. Bless all those who are here and around in our communities and families to uh, feel your healing grace. And we're so thankful for um, this beautiful earth and for the gospel that guides us and helps to anchor us in the world. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, why talk? Okay. I've not been on this end of the conversation. I, uh, I'm grateful to be here today. Um, and I'm not sure what's happening to my screen there. There we go. Um, I haven't caught. We have almost four years of this dialogue program. Um, during which I've been conducting along with Rebecca, uh, but never, never taught a lesson. And I'm, I'm actually glad and happy to be working with this one. Um, and the reason, the reason is because the scriptures that we're working with, uh, which are Second Nephi chapters four through nine or ten or somewhere in there, um, present a real wealth of opportunity to talk about uh, interpretation, to talk about uh, interpretation and challenges and how we read the Book of Mormon, which is uh, something I'm excited to talk about, uh, even though some of these parts are troubling and challenging, and sometimes we skip over them. Now, I'm going to uh, share my screen, play, um, and, and mostly be off talking off screen so that the words are there and not my face, um, and uh, let's let's go there. Let's see. That will be here. Um. There. Okay. Those are the lyrics to the song we just heard, um, and it might make sense later why I use those, but. Uh, It. There. Um, where are we going? Uh, Linda is going to read a poem that is appropriate to this lesson, and also join us later with commentary. We already know by talking with each other that we don't have exactly the same um, opinions about some of these things, uh, and so I am uh, encouraging and inviting Linda to come on later when it's time for discussion. Uh, you'll see how that might work. Um, I'm going to present the thesis about what we might mean 
by the Word of God. And then we're going to talk about four interpretive challenges. That is, uh, as you can see here, Deutero-Isaiah, Jacob's Ransom Theory of Atonement, The Skin of Blackness, which perhaps you all thought that was what we would talk about today, um, and Nephi's Lament. Uh, in each case, uh, what I want to talk about is what is the issue, what are possible answers, what are possible interpretations, and that's a lecture part, even though... Chris, you've gone blank. I've gone blank. But, but you're blank. <laughs> but you can hear me. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, my machine has a mind of its own today. Uh, no, not that. Start video. Okay. There we go. Um, one of the challenges with the our 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 viewers, with you all who are listening, because I've gotten I've gotten to know you, is that if we stop on any one of these, um, the discussion will go an hour an hour and a half, and so I'm going to lecture. I'm just going to plow through these interpretive, what I'm calling interpretive challenges. And then I want to pause on the, does any of this matter? The, do we care? And that's going to be the conversation. So get yourself ready. You will find that my opinion on each of these four in does it matter or do, or one does it matter or why does it matter is different. There's not a one size fits all answer in my head. Uh, but that's where I hope for some discussion. That is on the who cares kind of topic as opposed to the how do we work it out or what is the answer. Um, and then uh, Tedium will make sense at the very end. I will I, I'll I'll bring that in at the at at the end of this. Linda, you have um, let me see. I now have to mute, and you have the screen, and I will try to put the words on the screen here. All right, now you can need my glasses. This is a poem I wrote after attending the first um, gospel Sunday study or gospel study at church <laughs> this year. It's called a new year of scripture study. The teacher starts with the narrative as history. Verity in every word, fact, heft, characters. What if its author was on a quest to see beyond a reasonable world into holy, whirling what-ifs? What if his brain was full of expansion, glories upon glories, that had no translation adequate to the task? So what? So he did what he could with audacity, mingled with hope, chiasmus, and King James. Who can say what is true? Okay.
Given how quirky this is, I have to find the mute button, the unmute button, we're back. Okay, my thesis is that we read culturally um, as a group, as Mormons uh, growing up in this, in this church or joining as adults, um, what we get out of Sunday school, what we get out of normal conversations about the Book of Mormon is that the Book of Mormon is um, inerrant and univocal. This is a classic way of reading the um, Bible. Uh, if anybody's listening to Dan McClellan, you will hear criticism regularly of this point of view, but it is, it is a traditional classic way of reading Scripture. That Scripture is inerrant and univocal, that it is the Word of God. This is what I think we mean when we say the Book of Mormon is true, or we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly, and we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. And here I've included the words out of um, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, that I think we culturally assume and, um, uh, and use when we're talking about the Book of Mormon. Um, but in actual conversation, and sometimes some of us get into trouble doing this, um, we end up talking both about the Bible and about the Book of Mormon, although the Book of Mormon is a different kind of challenge with uh, a different lens that uses context, that uses genre, that refers to the words at the beginning of the Book of Mormon about errors of men, that talks about things that might be probable versus things that are possible uh, as we uh, try to make sense of some of the words and some of the descriptions and some of the conflicting history and stories that um, don't make sense in a plain reading. So the first for today's reading is um, the first place where I think challenges come up are the uh, what are often referred to as the Deutero-Isaiah or Second Isaiah problem, if you will. Um, that is, to state it uh, in uh, Grant Hardy's language, uh, First Isaiah, this, this is according to contemporary scholars reading the Bible, find that First Isaiah is chapters 1 through 39, written by one person, Isaiah ben Amos, that chapters 40 through 55 were probably written, of Isaiah, were probably written by an anonymous prophet during the Babylonian exile, and that the end of Isaiah, third, chapters 56 through 66, are probably written during the Persian period. Now, the problem is that in 2 Nephi 6, 7, 8, and 9, we have Jacob reading from, by using the internal logic of the Book of Mormon, reading from Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 55, which, according to the timeline of the scholars reading the Bible, is anachronistic, is a conflict with, would not have been available according to the internal timeline of the Book of Mormon. Um, those if you're taking the scholarly approach to Isaiah, you are 
you have Jacob reading texts that, that did not exist in the world at the time. The Book of Mormon has Jacob um, reading or relating that language. Um, and for some people, that's a problem. Now, there's some approaches to this. Um, one is what I think is the most, and that's why I bolded it, uh, the most common in our Sunday school is to just ignore this. Um, we don't do higher criticism. We don't care what the scholars say. Uh, instead, we turn to these chapters and find them in these chapters in Second Nephi and find them some of the most Christ-centered chapters. They're doing the same thing that the New Testament Gospels do, um, putting the words of Isaiah, the, the messianic words of Isaiah, in support of Jesus's me, uh, mission on the earth. Um, let's just celebrate. Let's just go on. We don't need to spend time on higher criticism. Now, there, there are other approaches. Um, one is to get into the conversation that the scholars are wrong when they're interpreting Isaiah as three different writers. Another is to think of Jacob as a, Jacob in the Book of Mormon, as a prophet who came by these words that he's reading or quoting by inspiration, that they were provided to him. Um, maybe not available on the brass plates, but um, without a full explanation of that, available to him. Um, another is to see it as Joseph Smith inserting the language of Isaiah um, in order to do that very messianic foretelling that, um, that the gospel writers did. Uh, a third is to think of Joseph Smith as involved in a process of translation that includes having a an understanding, a sort of gestalt of what's happening here, of what Jacob might have been doing and finding the right words out of Isaiah that was available to Joseph Smith to insert in that place. Now, we could pause here, and if I did, I'll bet we would spend an hour talking about these. But this is the screen that I actually want to spend some time on. Um, does it matter? And I'm going to, this is where I'm going to invite um, comment, question, debate, and I'm going to look to Linda in just a minute, and Rebecca, and everyone else who's here. But just for myself, um, does it really matter, this second, or Deutero-Isaiah issue, if you will? Uh, personally, I don't care. I mean, I have thought about it. I have some thoughts of my own. Um, some of those I'm in print on. But as I sit here today in 2024, I, I don't care. But if it's uh, if it's an issue for you, if you're wrestling with it, um, go for it. You, uh, you go ahead and work on it. Um, as for the question whether the Book of Mormon is Scripture, whether the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, whether I'm going to respect or read or include in my life the Book of Mormon as Scripture, um, I do need to think about this. I do need to have a personal position, and I know people who have wrestled with this Deutero-Isaiah problem and, and walked away from the Book of Mormon, just discard it. I mean, that is, and, and, and so I think that is a, uh, a real question that people um, 
and including myself, need to think about. As for the community, this is now I'm imagining me sitting in Sunday school. Um, again, I probably don't care. If you're going to have this discussion in Sunday school, I can enter into it. I can sit on my hands. Um, I'm not particularly concerned uh, what others believe. Uh, however, and this has happened to me, if you turn around as part of the community, look at me and say, you must think this way or you don't belong, um, I guess I have to wrestle that to the ground because I, um, if you're going to impose on me your opinion or your point of view or your decision about this Deutero-Isaiah, if you will, um, I think we might have a conflict and we might have to resolve that. Uh, uh, Linda, would, what, what do you think? Oh, let's see. Do I have to unmute? Yes. Okay. Yeah, my response when you said that was you're going to take it out to the back alley <laughs> and duke it and literally duke it out if you come to blows about that. Um, I, I think the whole concept of how do how does one interpret scripture is complex in many ways idiosyncratic. I always get a little edgy when someone interprets a particular scripture as absolutely means this way. I like, um, that's how we developed an entire history of various sects and denominations that uh, the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith decried and presented with us, or to us, a truth. Um, and I don't want us to fall back into what may have been divisions from the past where we splintered off into groups depending on uh, how we independently or as a small group interpreted particular scriptures. So that's some of my musings. So I'll just um, add, so I'm with you, Chris, like for myself, it doesn't really matter <laughs> this particular, um, uh, you know, point you're making. Um, but because uh, in our community, as you said, like for interacting in the community, uh, it raises some other challenges. Um, and because as you said, we read the Book of Mormon as inerrant and univocal, or we tend to do that, or at least that is the expectation that that's how um, good members of the church are supposed to read the Book of Mormon, that it does create um, conflict. Um, so uh, so as we think about, um, think about kind of a faith community as opposed to um, kind of individual spiritual journeys. It's something that we're uh, having to grapple with uh, kind of over and over again. Um, and that raises questions about like, what is our community? And is, does this community work for me? Does it fit for me? Am I allowed to, um, yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, and as some some folks in the chat have pointed out, like, uh, you know, these kind of challenges where, you know, exists like throughout the Book of Mormon, where we're bringing in, um, where there are references to um, previous scripture, other theological points. Um, and then what, what are we, what do we do with that? And what are we allowed to do with that um, as individuals, but then as a community sitting in uh, in Sunday school? Okay. Uh, I had experience over my decades as a church member, having grown up uh, Christian, Protestant, and faithful, uh, that struggling with the question the missionaries always pressed on you is the book of mormon true and people in church getting now i guess it's called the the five finger testimony i'm not exactly sure what all those five parts are but uh i think one of them is that the book of mormon is true and i've never fully understood what that question meant and the missionaries kept pressuring me to well, ask it. Well, I had a long time. And I remember once I was already a mom of three kids on my knees praying again, is the Book of Mormon true? And my prayer was interrupted by words that were not my own. And they were... You are asking the wrong question. What you need to ask is, where does God want you? And that was so fresh and off the wall and startling that I believed it. <laughs> I mean, I just, it, that made sense to me. Where does God want me? And it came to me that he wants me here, which may not be a picnic for me in, in some ways, but even with my inability to to answer with a stock phrase, with my propensity for trying to uh, interpret scriptures differently from those who sit in the pews next to me, for my continued deep affection for the truths I gained as a child growing up, as a teenager growing up, as a Christian all my life, uh, here I am, because God asked me to ask myself, where does God want me? And he wants me here. Thank you. And Thank you, Linda. And what I have learned is that um, the God wants me here message uh doesn't mean that when you sit in Sunday school, everybody's going to have the same point of view about the Book of Mormon that you do. That didn't come with the package. Uh, let's see. I hope we're going to move on. Um, let's see. It's by screen sharing. That's the question. Next one. Saved or damned? Uh, in Second Nephi chapter 9, Jacob, uh, it's not. It's not. Your screen is not showing, but I can also just put it in the chat. All right. Well, I uh, let's. I could. I should be able to make that work. Um, we had it working. 
Let's see. Yeah. Share screen. Oh, somehow. And I'd like that. I'd like that to work. Oh, you just put it in this chat. Okay. Well, then I'll talk. Um, thanks, Rebecca. So, um, Jacob has a big sermon. Um, and in Second Nephi 9, he's talking about the atonement. He's talking about how, um, how it works. Uh, Jesus comes into the world that he may save all men if they hearken unto his voice. He commands all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name. Um, and it, we often use this. It's a pretty powerful uh, sermon on the topic of atonement, on the soteriology, on how salvation works. Um, I don't like it. Um, and uh, the reason is that my own understanding of atonement, my own thinking about how Salvation works about sin and repentance and atonement has, um, I mean, I learned all this when I was a kid and I have different thoughts now. And I actually think that um, Joseph Smith had different thoughts, that the Mormon world has in, includes a much more sophisticated way uh, of thinking about this. But here, here are some approaches that we take to this. One is, this is the Word of God. This is the truth. This language that we find in, um, in Jacob's sermon, if you will, is, is how salvation works. Another way is to think of it like I do, that this is early Mormon, Arminian, Methodist, 19th century elected or free will ransom theory that was later supplemented with temple practices, with concepts of foreordination, with um, a reach for assured salvation. Um, some of us would call that sermon in Jacob, Joseph Smith's first draft. Um, another is to think of this as Jacob's version. That is one person's version, like we might get in a talk in general conference, that is very meaningful and content-filled but not meant to be a systematic or a comprehensive presentation. It's, it's a piece of the whole story. Or another way that I see people work with this sermon Jacob has given us um, is to say, this is Jacob talking to his family and talking to family members who need to be called to repentance. It's the kind of sermon you give to people who are... Um, moving off the path and meet and and you think they need to be called short and uh and made responsible and it's not necessarily the whole story or all of what we might get if we were having a full conversation with someone who is really trying or who really wants to make it all work um so those are approaches and again we could spend an hour on those but i want to come back to that same question does it really matter um, does it really matter whether 
I agree with or buy or need to interpret in some way this this sermon about um, about the doctrine of salvation, about uh, atonement, and and my own read um, is that yes, I do care. I need to, for myself. This is a topic I want to figure out. I want to pay attention. So this is worth study and time. It's worth me um, figuring it out for myself as part of my life journey. Um, on the other hand, with respect to whether the Book of Mormon is scripture, whether I um, uh, you know, honor or validate that book as scripture or not, not really on my radar. I don't much think about the Book of Mormon being good or not good or valid or true or not in this subject. I mean, I am interested in how how atonement works and how salvation works, but I'm not. It 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 doesn't occur to me to wrestle with the Book of Mormon as a book or as scripture in this context, and that may be because I personally just feel free to uh, interpret to. Pay attention to this scripture, to read about it, to think about it, to put it in the mix of things that I'm working on, but not, I don't happen to pause and say, does this mean the book is true or not true? Um, on the third hand, now I'm in thing, into the community context. If you're going to teach my children in Sunday school, or in seminary, this is the word of God. This is the last word on the topic of salvation or atonement. I have a problem with that. I mean, I, I, I don't believe that, but if that's the way you're going to use the Book of Mormon to teach my children, um, I feel like I have to deal with the community. I have to, I do feel some obligation or responsibility or desire anyway to address that and to say you know, to the teacher, this is not the whole story. There's more. Um, this is a big topic. I, I do different ways to talk about it, but I don't think I am willing to leave that alone for what my children get in Sunday school. Um, and of course, I mean, this will be a standard for me. I guess I do have one point of view. If you're going to turn around and tell me what I have to think or what I have to believe, um, we're not going to go out in the back alley, but I, I'll probably just walk away from that conversation. Uh, so um, let me turn around. Linda, Rebecca, commenters, um, on this topic where we are, the, the topic, I guess, really is when there's some serious doctrine, some hard or you know, kind of stuff we talk about when we're talking theology, um, theory uh, in the Book of Mormon. Um, what do you do with that? How do you work? How do you work with that? So, um, so theological concepts like this, I think, really matter. Um, you know, who, I mean, it has to do with, um, you know, who we believe God to be. Um, who Christ is, uh, what the meaning of his life was, um, and, uh, and what, what are we all about here? <laughs> what are we doing? What is our relationship 
to Christ? What is our relationship to other people? Um, I really love David Sandberg's comment in the chat. He says, I read uh, this from Jacob as saying that Christ has embraced the full dimensionality of the human experience. We hear his voice when we are willing to be honest about the complexity of life. Then growth can occur. We are damned when we deny the reality of the complexity we live in, when we yearn for magical thinking. Um, and I, that really fits with kind of how I um, think about um, this doctrine, um, that, it's, uh, that it's about, um, you know, what does it mean to take on Christ? Um, uh, how does God feel about us? What does he want for us? Uh, and what happens when we don't uh, take on Christ, when we don't um, live as if the kingdom of God is in us and have the same um, attitude, relationship to all of his children um, that that he, he wants us to? Um, uh, it really matters for our, my kids, like, like you said, like that really matters to me um, and how they grow up thinking about themselves and about the world and the people around them and how to interact. Um, yeah. I guess uh, one thing that comes to my mind is that partly because of that prayer experience that the typical question has been superseded for me in how I approach um, the question of where does God want me? And apparently he wants me here. And that puts on me, what does he want me doing here? And that comes to the basic question that Jesus says, love everyone, treat them kindly too. When your heart is full of love. Well, and then I don't like the last line because it's transactional. <laughs> it says others will love you, but you can't count on that. <laughs> so, but the, um, the imperative for me is that I, my task is to love everyone, whether they're in this community that challenges me more often than I ever thought it would or just in the world that's full of so many varied points of view and cultural attitudes and civilizations that have asked questions about the sky and the stars that is just not part of how I view my own personal theology. I think it's very simple. Jesus said, love everyone, and that is a tough gig. So that's what my work is about. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I see that in Jacob, right? Like that's, that's my reading, um, that the message uh, is about, um, you know, a God and a Savior who cares about all men, um, everyone's pains. Um, um, he sees, he knows. Um, pains of every living creature, men, women, children, everyone who, all of humanity, right? I mean, it's such an inclusive vision. So, so, um, so this notion of, um, you know, a particular 
people who are saved or particular people who are damned, um, I see it really changing, cha challenging that. Um, and yeah. So I will add just over Linda's voice and Rebecca, thank you. Um, but um, that the message to be here as I've watched you in your life, it had, did not translate as be here and sit on your hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, somehow you found in that room just be here and speak up. And I, I personally appreciate that, but that's sort of the topic here. It is not a call to be um, silent in the community. It's a call to be um, present and participating in the community, which may mean having this conversation. Um, so let's go. Is my screen sharing now? I hope it is. Um, because I want these words. Um, this might be the most challenging part. This is um, the skin of blackness. And, and if you know where we are in the scriptures, you will know already that this was part of what was today's reading. And it's a part that we often skip over, which is actually relevant to today's conversation. Um, 20 through 25 in 2 Nephi 5 are the most, maybe for me, the most difficult um, language in the Book of Mormon. Um, these are the verses where we get um, people being cut off from the presence of, Lord, of the Lord, on whom he caused a cursing to come, cause that they will be loathsome unto their people. The Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them, and they will be a scourge unto thy seed. Um, these are such awful words that I uh, actually choke a little bit reading them here. And uh, um, But they're here, the part of Book of Mormon. And so what do we do with them? Um, one is, and I'm, you know, we're going for it today, so I'm going to put the, I'm going to put this up. One is, this is the word of God. This is really how it works. This is really how God works. And, and therefore, I mean, the implication is God is racist. God cuts people off. God perpetuates racial conflict, condemns interracial marriage, curses the children of an interracial marriage. Uh, now, now, quoting a friend, but this could be my quote, this is heinous theology and blatantly racist. Um, and, and there's something to be said for people who, at this point, just are done with the Book of Mormon. I mean, I, I don't think that's actually uncommon. I think there are people who get, there are people among us, there are people who get to this section and say, I'm, I'm, I'm done. This is not a book I'm going to pay attention to. Uh, so, I mean, so one approach is literal, inherent, univocal truth. Um, and, and the backside of that is, that's so heinous, I'm just done with the Book of Mormon. I mean, there are some other things we can think about. One is that this is a place where the errors of men show up. Um, as in, imagine Nephi saw divisions happening, um, even maybe a change in skin color, and that fits the historical arc of the Book of Mormon, that there are 
divisions within family, there are tribal differences, and read but read the explanation as Nephi's imagination, Nephi trying to make sense of it, um, which whether you think that's Nephi's voice or Joseph Smith's voice in translation, um, would reveal that writer as racist, as having some really hard beliefs about what God does and how race works, and as um, but doesn't put it back on God, uh, which is an important conversation, really. Um, is this a human point of view, or are we really going to put this this racism back on God. Um, in that context, I will just note for interest of time, this is um, much more text than I want to deal with. Uh, there's another interpretive issue here in that um, most scholars, if you will, think of racism in the sense of defining people by skin color or by uh, physiology me by by facial features uh, by by physical characteristics in any way in other words um, as a as a phenomenon as a development of the 17th 18th century as uh, I mean divide divisions by ethnicity divisions by family divisions by uh, tribe or even by geography were are, are ancient but um, but dividing by skin color is something that is uh, fairly recent, like 17th, 18th century. And so using skin color as a curse is um, in the Book of Mormon uh, has, a, has a certain anachronistic quality. If we want to go down that rabbit hole, um, that is uh, could be a side note. And I'm going to move on from that. I mean, another... Which I um, another way to approach this is to treat it is to is to read it as a history of conflict, uh, which I think is in indisputably the Book of Mormon. I mean, the Book of Mormon is is wars and rivers of wars and, and conflict between uh, broken families. Um, but here we have the story written by one side, by one branch. And when that happens in historical texts, we see over and over again, we see this in the Bible, we see it in other texts, we see that the side keeping the record or writing the story um, says really awful things about the other side and really unreasonably positive and good things about themselves. And that's sort of the nature of telling a history um, of conflict. Uh, where only one side is telling the history. And we, um, it is not uncommon to read significant parts of the Bible that way. Um, and it's a way to read this of the, this section in the Book of Mormon in that way, that this is a conflict story told on one side, um, where people, uh, really exaggerate the sins of the other side and the virtues of the uh, writing side. Um, and maybe the historians in the audience can talk about that. But as I've noted, I want to go to the um, question of does it really matter? Because I don't want to take the next hour, we can't afford to take the next hour, um, 
I'm going to do the decrying about this section. Does it really matter? Uh, and this is the discussion. Uh, my, my first answer is, like, yes. Um, Linda recommended that I not put the real word there. Um, uh, this is not an academic exercise. That plain language, uh, inerrant, univocal voice is, is intolerable. I mean, if, if that's what I'm forced to, I'm out of here. I mean, I'm one of those who is, who is done with this. I don't feel I'm forced to, but if I am forced to, uh, that, that I, I, I will not accept it. I, I mean, full stop. Um, and therefore, this is one of the places where I have to really wrestle with what do I think of the Book of Mormon. Um, this is a test case for me of how I can read, how I can accept the Book of Mormon. Uh, because the bottom line is, um, uh, this is one of a dozen different test cases, but this is probably the first one that comes to mind. Um, the univocal inerrant reading is is just not working. I mean, I, that's that's not me. I can't do it. Um, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I'm not willing to, whether I can or not. Um, but here, here when we talk about community, for me, this is a difference. For the most part, for most of the issues we've talked about, I'm willing to live and let live. I mean, if you're going to teach my children, I got some issues there. Let's talk about it. But if you're going to have a conversation in Sunday school and there, there are going to be differences of opinion, for many of these issues on the table today, I'm willing to let that conversation go, maybe make my comment, um, but not here. I mean, this is one where I, if we're going to talk about this in Sunday school, I'm going to speak up. And if we're going to choose to skip over it because we're embarrassed or because we don't like it or because we don't want a conflicting, an argumentative kind of discussion, I'm also going to speak up to say we can't skip over this. This is something that infects our community in the form of everybody who is taking this verse, these verses as um, inerrant, univocal, word of God, this is how God is. I'm not willing to let that go. This is a place where I'm going to speak up and say, no, we as a community cannot do that. Um, sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit because that's a hard line and that's not, that's not being nice, I guess, but, um, that's where I am. I, may I add something? Please. I, I recently watched a video of, of, um, Jared Halverson speaking with the Faith Matters people. And the, he told an anecdote of being at a conference with other religious leaders, and an evangelical friend of his said, told him that, I, I can dismiss the Book of Mormon completely before reading a word of it because of the preface. In the preface to the Book of Mormon, it says, and if there be any faults, they are the faults of humans, I guess. I can't remember how it's worded exactly. And he said right there, I believe in an inerrant scripture. And if your scripture's already telling me before I even read the first word that there may be 
problems in this document. I'm not going for it. And I'm thinking, I like the idea that before you read a word of it, there is a, um, a, a, a footnote, I guess, saying, and if there are problems, it's men's problems. It's not, it's not God's problems. And I think that's been true in my reading. It allows me flexibility. It allows me to read the Bible with a, uh, a non-univocal viewpoint. And uh, I think it's a wonderful addition that I hadn't picked up on until I saw that conversation. Could I say something, Chris? Please, please. Okay. So I was just going to say that I find the, the curse narrative one of the strongest evidences for the Book of Mormon's historicity because every ancient historian I've ever read says nonsense like that about their enemies. Uh, you know, in the Bible, you get uh, the Moabites are the descendants of Lot having incestuous relationships with his daughter. Uh, you get in Tacitus, in Herodotus, in Plutarch, in Thucydides. All of them have this tendency to create really offensive mock etiologies for, for the enemies that they're currently fighting. So when I see Nephi doing this, I'm thinking, well, yeah, this, this is how historians did this in the ancient world. So I, you know, I, I actually think it's a, a positive evidence for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, okay, Michael. So positive evidence for the Book of Mormon, but... Um, but it shows that really disturbing theology. Really disturbing theology, but it shows that the authors... Um, are are as uh, offensive and yeah. um, nonsensical about their current enemies as almost every other ancient historian was. That's how history works. And 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 I've actually I've actually read you on that, Michael. And that is um, that is to read the Book of Mormon as history, but not as the Word of God. That's a, that's a, uh, there's a distinction there, or. Well, or, or is filtered through time and place, and yeah. All. So I, I, so Mary Lynn Hutchinson says, if the Book of Mormon was written for our day, one of the most important lessons we must learn is to recognize and avoid their mistakes, and and this is one of those mistakes. Um, uh, and it and it makes it, and I mean, for most of LDS history, we've just like either believe this or glossed over it or some combination of of the above. Um, and, um, you know, if we believe kind of what Jacob says about the atonement and um, the nature of God, it's imperative that we um, kind of discern, you know, use our powers of discernment and, and utterly reject and speak up, as you said, um, about uh, this idea as as coming from God. And, um, you know, you mentioned something about, like, maybe it's mean to say something, like, it, to, like, talk back to folks in Sunday school who are somehow comfortable with this, but um, but we've got to recenter kind of who we're thinking about um, 
and who has been most affected by these harmful te teachings and um, and to really grapple with the fact that the church has not been a place where the very essence, like who you are as a person has has been affirmed, um, that you have not been included in um, the family of God um, for so many of our um, brothers and sisters of color. And, and that's painful. And to grapple with that pain um, and to take it upon ourselves, I think, is um, really important. And how we respond to teachings like this, um, you know, really matter. I, let's see. I also think it's it's important to, to kind of note that in Joseph Smith's time, in 19th century America, most people believed in a 6,000-year-old Earth, and they had to figure out a way to get all human phenotypical differences into 6,000 years. So these curse narratives had had this folkloric importance that, uh, that they managed to account for. for I mean, they're like, how the bear got its tail kinds of uh kinds of narratives and and in that folk context they make a certain amount of sense they make no sense in our context and our scientific understanding of genetics and inheritance yeah now my see my read and i i i have sort of skipped over how do i personally read as opposed to these different alternatives um because I mostly read the Book of Mormon as a 19th century text, and I'm in print having said that, so I'm not, this is not a confession. I get some real pushback about that. I mean, I read this language as very similar to what 17th and 18th century people were doing, rationalizing African, the African slave trade, basically. Um, these are lesser people, and it's okay kind of thing, and that's, that's what I get when I'm reading this. But then the point of this lesson is, then I want to say that. Then I want to say, that's what I see happening here. And that's wrong. And that's, and I we now know better. And I, for me, that needs to be a conversation as opposed to skipping over it or um, ignoring because it's a painful conversation. And I appreciate Rebecca's comment along that line as well. Um, I'm there's just not time to dwell on everything, so I'm going to move to the the end, which is a somewhat easier comment uh, or discussion. Let's see if I can get there. Um, okay, this this last is the. I call it the topic of poetic license. And you're going to see that I have a slightly different point of view about whether whether it's okay or whether I... So here's a story. Um, for me, Nephi's Lament, which is the fourth chapter of Second Nephi, is has been over the years one of the most meaningful um, parts of the Book of Mormon for me in my personal devotional life. Um, not as a matter of theology or a matter of wrestling with uh, hard things about um, racial differences, but as a matter of my own devotions. Uh, Nephi's Lament has been 
uh, really important. And at one point in time, I took from uh, the whole chapter this um, these phrases that are on the screen, O Lord, redeem my soul, deliver me out of the hands of my enemies. You won't find exactly these words in exactly this. I mean, there's, there's ellipses and edits throughout here. I made this up. I'll call it poetic license out of Nephi's lament um, and carried it around with me. It became a meditation for a couple of decades. And in that time, the phrase that I bolded here became the, a core part of who I am, what my walk on this earth is about. Sorry, I'll tear up. Let me walk in the path of the low valley. Let me be stripped on the plain road. Now, that has developed um, multiple decades worth of meaning for me. And I bet that they're not at all what Nephi meant uh, or what the original was. I have taken license to make of Nephi's lament something that has become important to me. And um, I'm going to just assert that that's okay. I'm not going to open that to challenges or, um, you know, you don't get to do that with the scriptures. Um, I'm going to just assert, yes, I do, because I did, and it has been important to me and uh, has turned into, and here's where I will end, um, I guess I would move one more step to say, I'm not interested in debate on whether I get to do this, but I also would turn around and say, I would teach my children, I would teach my grandchildren to do the same, to make of the scriptures something that works and makes meaning for them. Whether it's literally, inerrantly, univocally part of what was there in the original or not, um, that that's a work that we can be about and that way that we can use the scriptures. And so, um, for me, this is where I am. Um, what that has become for me is, um, in the words of uh, Charles Resnikoff's Te Diem and, uh, and a plate that Joe um, yeah, just Joe, but that Joe Benyon made for me. Um, not because of victories, I sing, having them. But from common sunshine, the breeze, the largest of the spring, not for the victory, but for the day's work done, as well as I was able. Not for a seat upon the dais, the common table. I'm... Thank you. Hey, thank you, Chris. Um, we'll continue with a little more conversation, uh, but we'll officially go ahead and close um, with a prayer by uh, David Sandberg, uh, one of our uh, longtime um, class attendees, and, and he's also taught for us as well. Uh, join us again in two weeks on March 10th, uh, just after International Women's Day, and we'll have Maxine Hanks teaching us that Sunday. Our gracious heavenly parents, 
We pray to thee at the end of this meeting. We are grateful for the tenderness and honesty which has been shared this day. We express our gratitude for a book that challenges and inspires us. We pray that we may be true to the words of God that we find therein, and that we may act on them in a way to testify of thy loving care through this book, which has come to guide us in an age of conflict and confusion. We offer this prayer in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Amen.